Um, so if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Ma- uh, Micah chapter 6. Micah's in the Old Testament, um, kind of towards the end of the Old Testament. Hard to find. It's a shorter book, so I'll give you a chance to, to find it. So if you haven't been with us, <clears throat> your first week in a while, we're in week 6 of our series called... We are the church. And so what we've really spent the last few weeks doing is really the first four weeks, we built this foundation for what is the church in the first place? Like, well, why do we come to church? What's the point of being here? Um, and then we looked at what it means to be the church, right? Because again, the church is not a building. It's not an organization. It's a people. And, and we are the church. And what's that supposed, to, what are we supposed to do? Who are we supposed to be? And then we looked at for a few weeks, like, within that context, then now how do we live and react and walk in a Christ-like or holy way in a culture that seemingly cares less and less about biblical things, about godly things, where it's going to be more and more difficult for us to live for what is holy or to see things, as we've been saying, we want to see things through a Christian worldview or another way of saying that, how do we see things through the lens of holiness and let that define everything that we do. And so today, as last week, we're going to kind of be tackling another tough topic. So if you're here today and you didn't get to hear the first three or four sermons in the series, I really encourage you to go back and listen to them. I don't do that very often, but the foundation for the series is just so important. Understanding what the church is, understanding what God called us to, understanding what it means to be the church and how we're supposed to live as the church is so important if we're going to walk faithfully in some of these tougher things that we're going to talk about as this series goes along and we're going to handle them rightly. And so here's kind of where we're going today. Um, I don't know if you've seen this or if you've wrapped your mind around this, but I feel like the church in our country, particularly when it comes to the political arena, has become far, far more known for what we are against than who we are or who we're meant to be. Does that seem fair? Like it's all about what we're against. And listen, the truth, like we got to say this, the truth is important Right? And at times we need to say difficult things. We must say difficult things. If God calls it sin, we have to call it sin. Right? If God calls it evil, we have to say that it's evil. God has called us to fight for what is good and right and to bring light into the darkness. And so, sometimes we're going to have to stand up and just say difficult things. Right? So yes and amen to that. We're going to talk about that today. But how we say certain things, if you look scripturally, is just as important as why we say them. Right? Just as important as why we say them. And if how we are against things was just as important to us as why we are against them, I think we might actually have a chance of at least a little bit more being known for our love and our kindness and our compassion and our mercy and all the things that Scripture tells us that we should be and need to be in Christ. If you're with us in week two, we just read a lot of scripture and the New Testament just screamed at us how incredibly, how incredibly important is that it is that as we share truth, we're also all of these other things. How we share truth, how we go about our lives is so vitally important. So that being said, we're going to address, like I said, a tough topic today. We're going to address a kind of a debate in our country that a lot of people have now decided to label as women's health. You know what I'm talking about? Women's health, the title of women's health, is really just a smokescreen for an enormous section of our society that now wants abortion to not only remain legal, but for it to literally become a right in our country. Right? A right that's supported by taxpayer dollars, a right that everyone should be behind, everyone should support. And, they, and for a lot of a lot of states, a lot of politicians, a lot of political people, they want that right to be extended all the way up to right before the point of birth. 
right before the birth, all the way up. So, today we're going to address why, as Christians, we should absolutely be against this, if we should absolutely be against abortion, but also how we should approach this topic as a church, as people of, as people of compassion and reasonableness and understanding and wisdom. I don't know if you've picked up on it yet, but this series, when I said we're going to talk about politics and we're going to talk about tough topics, is this, the point of the series is not for me to come up here and hammer on those things. Right? I could preach to the choir, but that's not what this series is about. Have you picked up on that yet? It's more about, like, what is God calling us to? How are we supposed to approach these things? Who are we supposed to be within these tough topics? So if we're going to talk about a topic like abortion today, yes, we absolutely have to get to the truth. We absolutely have to make the truth very clear. But how we approach that truth, church, is just as important as why we need to talk about it. Does that make sense to you? So that's what we're going to be talking about today. Because in the end, this is what all tough topics, but this topic, you know what? You know how we handle this topic well? With love. And here's what I think. I think this is where we've gotten to a point as Christians. If we say we're supposed to address things in love, for some of us that feels weak. Do you know what I mean? It feels like weakness on a topic that's as, as important and as divisive as abortion. When I say, how do we handle this? We handle it in love. That's how we handle it. It sounds like weakness. But Scripture tells us over and over, this is how we handle things. This is how we walk through things. Like, love is the greatest commandment. Loving our neighbor as ourselves is the greatest thing we can do. Like, the world will literally know us by our what? Love. It doesn't say they'll, they'll know us by our truth or they'll know us by our anger. Of course, our, the truth is important. I'm not discounting that, but they'll know us by our love. But for some of us, that feels weak, like weakness. And so today, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about we're going to talk about abortion. It's going to be a part of the topic, but that's not really what we're talking about today. You know what we're really talking about today? Love. More importantly, we're going to talk about biblical love. As I've said throughout the series, not this watered-down, tolerant, weird version of love that our culture has created, but what the Bible actually says love is. If we understand what the Bible says love is, then we can understand how to handle these things rightly. Make sense? That's what we're, going to be, that's what we're really talking about today. So if you haven't opened up to Micah 6 yet, go ahead and turn to Micah 6. Let me give you a little context. Micah was written, Micah was a prophet in the Old Testament. And this was written just before, um, or the story in Micah at least, is, is written just before the fall of the northern kingdom of Israel to the country of Assyria. Right, and that God allowed this fall to happen. It was prophesied about again and again. The people were warned that this judgment from God and this was going to happen again and again and again. And so in the end, the northern kingdom of Israel and then the southern kingdom of Judah later, about 100 years later, they fell because it was a judgment from God because of their sin, because of their rampant sin. And there were many things that God had against his people. Some of the big ones were that they were worshiping false gods. And he warned them about this over and over and over Another thing was just the absolute moral failure of their religious leaders and their civil leaders, their political leaders, just the absolute moral failure. But the thing that I, I think God accuses them of the most in Hosea and Micah and Isaiah, you know what it is, what he accuses them of again and again and why God is just so angry? Because they didn't defend the right of the poor and the needy. The rich and the powerful will take, were taking advantage of the fatherless, of the widow, of the helpless, and the needy, 
and God would not stand for it. We're going to look at three different passages today that it talks about that. I think we, we think about the false gods, if you know anything about the Old, Old Testament and all of their sin, but one of the main things he had is they were not standing up for those who couldn't stand up for themselves. And God was not going to stand for it. So in the end, this is really what Micah is talking about. And what we're going to see in Micah and Hosea and Isaiah is, here's the thing, the people were still in some ways checking their religious boxes. And the Old Testament, they were commanded, it was the law to sacrifice animals to atone for their sin. And we don't have time to get into why if you've never heard that before, right? But they, they literally sacrificed animals for the atonement of their sins. And it pointed to the day that Jesus would sacrifice himself for our sins, right? To atone for our sins on the cross. So uh, it seems that in, in, in Micah's time, they were still, a lot of people were still doing these sacrifices, but God was saying, I don't care about your sacrifices. It was the law that they did sacrifices. But he said, I don't care about your sacrifices. Why? Because their hearts were hard and wretched, and they didn't love the way that God said to love. They didn't love God, and they didn't love the people. So that's our context as we jump into Micah chapter 6 today. So look at, with me in Micah chapter 6. We'll be in Verse 6. This is Micah talking on behalf of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Remember, that was the actual law. Verse 7. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousand of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and walk humbly with your God? If you were here last week, we saw in Matthew 12, Jesus addressed the religious leaders. And in Matthew 12, Jesus said, Listen, I desire, God desires mercy, not sacrifice. When he said that, he was summing up, kind of summing up two different passages, maybe three, but really two different passages. One was this one in Micah that we just read that kind of defi helps define what is good, or we're going to see in Hosea um, what is loving, what love is, what goodness is, is kind of defined in Micah, but he, he also kind of summed up this passage in Hosea. This is Hosea 6.6, 6, which says this, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings and that one's helpful because you take the Micah passage and this Hosea passage and you really begin to flush out what Jesus was trying to say when I desire mercy not sacrifice and so the first thing Micah is saying on behalf of God what is the point of the sacrifices if you don't love God? Who cares if you give thousands of rams? Who cares if you give 10,000 rivers of oil? And Micah goes this far. He says it as much hyperbole as he can. Who cares if you even give your firstborn child if you don't have love? As 1 Corinthians 13 says, you're like a banging gong. Like all of the deeds and all of the knowledge and all of the wisdom, and you can have everything, but if you do not have love, listen, you're nothing. This is what God's saying here. Who cares about all these things if you don't love me and you don't love people? These things are all worthless because you're completely missing the point of them in the first place. As Micah calls, steadfast love. So Micah, with Micah 6 and Hosea 6, you get to see this, this kind of this definition of biblical love or what Hosea calls steadfast love and what it looks like. And listen, we're, when we look at Micah 6, there's more to biblical love than just these things, but we're going to look at three things that Micah says is 
is good or what God requires. Because in the end, it's the greatest commandment. Love God and love people. That's what he's talking about here. So, biblical love, what we see in Micah, is to do justice. To love kindness. Or another way to say to love kindness the way that Christ used it, to have mercy. And then the last one is to walk humbly before your God. What's another way to, what's another way to say walk humbly before your God? Have faith. The Old Testament would say fear God. Have faith in God. So what this passage is pointing us to is biblical love does justice, extends mercy, and has faith. So let's look at the first one. Do justice. Remember, this one is huge because the reason that God destroyed Israel as a country, one of the main reasons God destroyed them was because of their lack of justice for the innocent, for the needy, and the helpless. Church, as we seek to fight for what is right, what is just, what is true, and that is important, and we need to stay humble in that, we need to pursue that. And it's the reason, because it says this, like we have to do justice. It's why we, have to st- we can't stay silent and we have to stand up for what the Bible teaches. We can't take the easy road and not speak up, right? We know what justice is because Scripture tells us what justice is. We know what is good and right because Scripture tells us what's good and right. As I've said in this series already, our culture is constantly changing what is good and right and what is just and what you should do and what love really is. Scripture has not changed in 4,000 years. So we have to seek the Word of God to know how we're to approach justice and what justice and truth actually looks like. And it's extremely important. And so in the end, because of what God, what God says love is and that we are to do justice, abortion is a good example of a topic that we just cannot remain silent on. We just can't. We just can't let it slide. We just can't chalk it up to something that people like to argue about. And it's become such a thing for the last like 50, 60 years that we just constantly argue about and people get so angry about. But hear me, we can't stop having the conversation. We just can't. And so for some of you, for some of us, this might seem cliche for me to say this because it's been said so many times, but we have to defend the cause of the helpless. This is real love. This is biblical love. And who is more helpless than unborn babies? Have you ever heard that said? Keep saying it. I don't care if it feels cliche or the, the, the Christian argument. The reason it's the Christian argument is because it's something that we can't deny, we can't back off from. Listen, a baby is a baby is a baby. And we can't start defining when we want it to be a baby as Christians. What's, what's easy for us as Christians, like this, this, in culture, this is not a simple argument, right? And I get that. And we need to understand that. Out in culture, for a lot of people who don't understand the word of God, who weren't raised up as a Christian, who weren't raised up with biblical truth, this is a very complicated thing. Can, can we just... Can we just say that and it's okay? But it's, listen, as Christians, it should not be a complicated thing. For us, it should be a really simple thing for the most part. Now, again, it might sound cliche, but a baby is a baby is a baby at the point of conception. Because that's what Scripture is showing us. Psalm 139, 13 and 14 says this, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully 
and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. Have you ever heard that one before? You're going to hear it again and again because we can't get away from that. That's just reality. God knew us and formed us and made it possible to be born in our mother's womb as he knitted us together. We are created in his image. Listen, that's everything from the very beginning. Genesis 1, Genesis 2, we are created in the image of God. And right right here it's saying from the moment we are knitted together in our mother's room, we are image bearers. We carry the image of God. We're talking about people, all people who bear the image of God. So whatever side of the, the argument that you're on, it doesn't matter. We're all created in the image of God and wonderfully and fearfully made, all of us. And this is from the very beginning. In reference to God calling the prophet Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 1.5 it says this, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. So God even knows us before he forms us and, and brings us into his creation and even has purposes for our life in the womb. At least we can say he did for Jeremiah. He absolutely did for people like Jeremiah and John the Baptist and, the, and Jesus. From the womb, he had purposes for their entire lives. So church, I, I usually don't say things that are complicated quite, quite this boldly, but I'm going to say this boldly. There is absolutely no biblical argument whatsoever to, to say that life does not begin at conception for a Christian. Now, hear me. If, if somehow as a Christian you disagree with that, like if you're, not, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I understand how this is going to be hard for, for you to fully accept or wrap your brain around. Hey, like, that's okay. I'd love to talk with you. But even as a, if you're a Christian in particular and you'd like to talk about like a biblical case for abortion, I would love to talk with you because just because we disagree with that, disagree on that topic doesn't mean I'm automatically against you. I don't want to fight with anyone over this, right? Because how often in our country does this just become a fight? What good, is that? What, does, what good has fighting for 50 years done? But if you want to talk about it, I would love to talk about it with you. To be understanding, like let's be reasonable together and try to work through this. Like this is one of those things in Scripture that I just, I, I, I can't see. I just, I, I'm not trying to make you feel like a terrible person if you disagree with me, but I just cannot see any kind of biblical case whatsoever to be, to be, pro-choice and to be a Christian. Those just two things that just don't align. So if you want to come talk with me about that, because biblically what it says, I would love to talk with you about it. I'd love to, like, be, let's, be, let's be reasonable together. Because God forms us in, from the very beginning. We are his creation. and has purposes for us even from the womb. But here's the thing. Like, there's so much, so much logical information that I, I was going to get into today. I had so much stuff. Like things like the baby's heartbeat starts at six weeks. We're going to say it's not a baby, but there's a heartbeat at six weeks. Or do you know a baby will, can recoil from a pinprick at eight weeks? Like get pricked and then try to prick them again and they'll recoil away from it. Or that babies can survive outside of their mother's womb as early as 24 weeks, maybe earlier. But I want you to see something. Those are cultural arguments. Do you see that? That's not a biblical argument. That's us trying to reason with other people, trying to convince them that a baby is a baby is a baby as we try to move that line back to try to, to, try to see. But church, as Christians, biblically, we don't need those caveats. 
Those are for other people to try to have a reasonable argument with them. Like, those aren't things that we should try to use to convince ourselves because Scripture just tells us clearly when a baby is a baby. And I, I think this is why this, this argument has kind of radically changed over the last five, ten years. Have you noticed that? It, the argument as a country has really kind of changed from that's not really a baby because science and cameras and technology and knowledge and here, I'm going to say this boldly because this is reality. And people watching videos of babies literally being ripped apart limb from limb during an abortion. Because too many people have now seen those videos and realized what's actually happening. The argument that it's not really a baby has not really worked. Do you, do you, I, I know sometimes it feels like we're losing this battle. But you know, for, for those who are pro-life, the needle hasn't really moved in 50 years. Did you know that? The people, like the percentage of people that were pro-abortion or, or pro-choice and those that are pro-life, the needle on both of those sides of the argument hasn't moved much in 50 years. Do you know why? Because people know that this is a baby. Right? They know. And so it hasn't moved the needle in 50 years. And so the argument has changed. People still argue it's not really a baby, but not nearly as much. Have you noticed that? You don't hear that nearly as much as we used to. That when I was younger, that's all we heard. That was the argument. But now it's changed because people are realizing just what the truth is, and it's harder to deny that it's not really a baby. The argument has changed from it's not a baby to it's about women's health. And when it comes to women's health, no one should deny a woman what she should do with her own body and dictate her choices to her. That's where this argument has gone. It's radically shifted in this direction. Because it's not a baby thing has not worked. But you know what? The, the women's health movement might work if we're not careful. You know why? Because nobody wants to be against women's health. Do you want to be against women's health? I don't. Like, I want women to be healthy. I want them to get the medical care that they need. I, 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 want, them to, I, want, I want women to thrive. I want men to thrive. I want women to thrive. We, we all want women to thrive, but that's, that's the division that's been created. So the pro-choice movement, movement has been trying very hard to create factions. One side that loves women and is for women, and the other side that is against women. Have you seen this? But like, they're trying to create these factions of one side and another. Do you know why? Because it works. This works. We've seen it with other major topics in our country, haven't we? This is the side that is for love. This is the side that is for hate. This is the side that wants good for people. This is the side that doesn't care about people. And because as Christians, we've been, become so known for what we're against as opposed to who we're supposed to be in Christ, this is effective. It's ineffective. And, and some other topics we might cover as we go through this series, we've already lost culturally. And this is the strategy that was employed. I hate to say that, but on some of these topics that are very biblical, we've lost the war. And I think this one's going to be harder to lose, but this kind of strategy has proven effective. So effective now that politicians have been able to pass laws in a handful of states where babies can be aborted right up to the point right before they're born. And the thing that they stand on is this is about women's health about women's health. So why would you deny a woman her, her right to be 
healthy. Why are you so against women? Here's just the reality. 92% of all abortions are fully elective. 92% are elective. Meaning, the choice was made, and it was not because of rape, or sexual assault, or incest, or a genuine risk to the mother's life. They were made because whatever, for whatever reason, the mother decided she didn't want the baby. Now, we're going to get into that in a second. I'm not saying those decisions are not complicated or extremely difficult. right? We're, listen, there's tons of mercy in this today. Just wait for it. We're, we're starting with truth. We're going to get to mercy. Because this is not, it's not as simple as all of that, right? But the, the reality is 92% of abortions are not about women's health. They're elective. Hear me. 0.5%. Not, not 5%. 0.5% of abortions are performed because of rape, sexual assault, incest, or because of a genuine risk to the mother's life. 0.5%. That's reality. You know, in Florida, they track all abortions, and 0.27% of abortions in Florida were because a risk to the mother, a genuine risk to the mother's life. 0.27. On average, more than a million babies killed every year for the last 53 years. 50 years. 63 million total. And only a tiny percentage of those are actually about women's health. Yet this argument is starting to work. It's starting to gain ground. There is so, so much more to say, so many more logical arguments for why we should be against this. But here's the thing, I think most of us in this room, I don't think all, but I think most of us agree on this topic. And if you don't, hear me again, I'm not against you. I've always said I want this to be a safe place where you can ask your questions, where you can be where you are, and just because I'm, I'm saying biblically I don't see any cause whatsoever, I want to stand on the truth, like this is true, this is what I believe, this is what I feel fully that scripture teaches without any caveats, right? But if you come from this from a different perspective, I'm not against you. I would love to talk with you about this. I'd love to walk through this with you. But in the end, I think most of us, most of us in this room agree that this is biblical, that this is right. And so, according to Scripture, real love doesn't, doesn't call us to just to be, have tolerance for everybody no matter what they think or no matter what their truth is or no matter what they say. That's not real love. Real love is that we fight for truth, we fight for justice because we believe that sin and evil leads to darkness that leads to more darkness that enslaves people and they don't find salvation and they don't have the redemption that is Jesus Christ. So we must stand up for what is true. That's love. And sometimes we have to fight. We fight in the way that Scripture says to fight, but we have to fight. We have to be bold. We have to say things. We, we can't just say, oh, I'm so sick of this argument. We're just not allowed to do that as Christians. That's what God had against Israel. They turned a blind eye to the suffering and the injustice because it was difficult or they didn't know how to stand up to people. Remember, I'm getting to mercy. But we have to stand up for what is true. That's what love is. That's what God's called us to. So the first thing biblical love requires is truth and for us to do justice, to fight for justice. But what else is a part of biblical love? 
As Hosea said, steadfast love. As Micah said, to love kindness. Or as Jesus summed it up in Matthew 12, to have mercy. Biblical love is merciful love. You know, Jesus was known for preaching about the kingdom, right? It's literally, he says, that's why I've come, to preach about the kingdom of God and lead people into repentance. Jesus stood up for what was right. He stood on the truth, no matter what. And what did it cost him? Everything. It cost him his life. They wanted to kill him because he stood up for what was true. But hear me, what else was Jesus known for? Think about it for a second. What else was Jesus known for? Healing and spending time with the sick. Eating with the tax collector. And if you don't know biblical history, the tax collector was probably the most hated person in Israel. Eating with the tax collector. Being friends with, not just talking to, being friends with the prostitute. He was known for, for forgiving freely, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, forgiving freely and doing life with people that others would call outcasts because of their sin, because of their background, because of their families. Jesus was known for his loving mercy to all, no matter what they had done. The prophet Isaiah, who preached around the same time as Micah and Hosea in chapter 1 of his book, accuses Israel of the same things that Micah and Hosea did. But then he says this in Isaiah 1, 16 through 18. Which is not that. It's, it's almost that. That's verse 18. So let, let me read the first part. It says this, Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow, which is what we've been talking about, right? But at the end of that, God is like laying out everything he has against Israel. But then he says this, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your stains are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. You know what this is saying? It's the same thing that Jesus tells us, that no one, no one is beyond the mercy of God. Of all of the terrible things that Israel had done, and they were terrible, God was willing to not only forgive them, but he's saying, I'll wash those sins away like they never happened. I'll wash those red stains as white as snow. This is, this is what... This is what God is telling them in the Old Testament. I'll forgive you. Just come. Stop doing evil. Repent. Come back to me. Love in the way that I say, I say for you to love, and I'll wash your sins as white as snow. This was Jesus' whole life. right? This was, this was Jesus with the woman at the well. This was Jesus with the woman caught in adultery. This was Jesus with the tax collector that everyone despised. And even the religious leaders are like, why are you eating with these people? Jesus' kindness and patience and understanding and his presence and his mercy and his love with those who had done the, even the most terrible things truly displays the depth of God's love for us and the kind of love that we're called to and the kind of love that we are called to. And we don't have time for today, but what a beautiful example is the woman at the well of this, right? Did, did Jesus hold back from telling her the truth? 
If you know the story of the woman of the well, man, she'd been with so many different men and she was sleeping with another man now. And yes, Jesus called that out in her, but he showed her mercy and compassion and patience and love. And so not only is this outcast woman because of her sin, like, like connected with Jesus, but she came to salvation. Then she went back to town and told everybody else about Jesus. And a, basically a whole town where, right at the beginning became, came to know Jesus as Lord because of this woman that everybody else had cast aside. That everybody else was real quick to tell her the truth and to cast her aside because of who she was and what she had done. Yet Jesus showed her truth and mercy and everything changed. Everything changed through that one relationship. Like in Samaria of all places. And we don't have time for that today. Church. Can we not find some compassion for the teenager who gets pregnant, has no idea what they're going to do, has no idea where they're going to go, so in the end feels like they have no other choice and goes and makes a terrible decision. Can we not, can we not have like genuine compassion for that? Here, I'll, let me make it tougher on you. Can we not show understanding and compassion maybe for a woman who's went to school for a long time and is caught up in her career and gets pregnant and she feels like she's going to have to throw her career away or her whole life's going to change she's not going to be able to get she might even get, lose her job or not be the woman that she thought she was going to be like has to, feels like she has to give up her whole identity I'm not saying it's right but can we not can we not have some understanding for that can we not have an understanding just for a woman who doesn't doesn't know scripture, doesn't know Jesus the way that we know, and it's just caught up in, in this world and in her sin, and she's caught up in a world that says, hey, listen, like it's not even a loving thing to do to bring a baby into this world if you're not ready. The loving thing to do is to actually go have an abortion, and now there's even people who are going to celebrate the bravery of that, so they want her to feel brave in making that decision. Can we not understand the difficulty of that? Or maybe a woman that's caught up in an abusive relationship and doesn't want to bring a baby into an abusive relationship, maybe she wasn't raped or sexually assaulted, but, but physically abusive and doesn't want to bring a baby into an abusive relationship can we not understand how that might happen as I've said before we're so, so sometimes maybe not in this church but as the as the religious right or whatever else as people that are against abortion we're so busy yelling about our moral superiority we forget that there's actually people involved here and yes we need to fight for the babies yes but how many women do you think actually went to the abortion clinic thinking it was the right thing? There's probably some. But for me, I'm guessing most of them that knew it wasn't the right thing, knew it was the thing they didn't want to do, had to make a terrible decision. It doesn't mean we excuse it in any way, but can we not have compassion for women that felt like they had no other choice in a culture that may even applauded them for that choice? I'm not asking us to agree. Of course I'm not. But can we not have mercy? The way Jesus had mercy. The person that, to me, it seems like Jesus was the quickest to reach out to and spend time with because he knew they might just be the person that needed to know the depths of his love and his radical forgiveness more than anyone else. Here's the reality, church. We, we can treat people who have done this like those people. 
But the truth is they aren't those people. They, they are our people. For this is, the part, this is a part of the story of many people in our church. Yet they feel like they have to hide from it. Listen, if this has been a part of your past, whether you are a guy who encouraged a woman to have an abortion or maybe you found out that she had one without telling you, or whether you're a lady and this has been a part of your life, maybe even multiple times, can I say something to you? We love you. And Christ's mercy and forgiveness is so much more powerful than your sin. It's, it's more powerful. His mercy is more powerful than all of our most terrible mistakes. And we've all made terrible mistakes. If we come in repentance, there is nothing stronger than God's love and forgiveness for you in Christ. Even this can be washed as white as snow. So ladies, if this is a part of your past, ladies in particular, this is part of your past, I want you to hear me. You are not alone. You're not alone here. For one, we have a group of ladies in our church that have decided like they, they, they want to engage into this in a meaningful way. And so they went to meetings with people that specialize in this. And there's ministries out there that specialize in this, that have women that this is a part of their past, that have counselors that can walk you through this. Like we have places like the Pregnancy Care Center, but other places, but there's a lot of resources in our city if, if you've walked through this before. We're not experts at Freshwater Church, but there's plenty of people in our city that are. And there's women in our church that just love you. And they've been learning about this because they don't want you to walk through this alone. They don't want you ever to feel like you're alone. Because real love, yeah, we stand on truth, but we also have mercy. And they're committed that you won't be alone, whether you're thinking about this or whether this is a part of your past. Things have so much power if they're left in the darkness. It's when we bring them into the light that God does this amazing thing to start freeing us from the guilt and the shame of our past and the things that we have done. So you're not alone here, but hear me. I want, I want you to hear me. There, it's more than that. Do you know Esther? Esther, will you raise your hand real quick? That's Esther. We love Esther. I mean, what, is there anything not to love about Esther? She's one of our deacons at our church. She also happens to be the head of our prayer ministry. And she has the kind of faith and the life that a lot of us look up to. And God has used her in powerful ways in our church, particularly in women's life. And Esther's not only a part of that team that wants to love you through this and wants to learn how to love our women well, but this is a part of Esther's past. Our deacon. Esther understands the feelings. She understands the pain. She understands the regret that so often follows this decision. And she asked me to tell you, I'm not saying this, she asked me to tell you, if this is your story, you are not alone. Not in some theory land. You are not alone. There's women here that know, that understand, and that love you and want to walk th through this with you. Want to help you accept God's forgiveness. And maybe most importantly, help you to forgive yourself. God does not want you to be held in slavery to a decision you made at one point. Please, hear me, please, if this is a part of your story, reach out to Esther because she loves you. She may not even know you yet, but she already loves you because that's who she is. Reach out to somebody and let them walk through this with you. 
Because this is what a church family is supposed to be. It's what it's meant to be. We rejoice together. We weep together. And we speak the gospel into each other's lives together. And listen, if this is also a part of your past, and praise God, he's set you free from the guilt and the shame, right? It's a terrible decision. We all know it's terrible. But like you've, you've been able to move forward, and you've been able to accept God's forgiveness, and, and you really feel like you're moving forward. Could you talk to Esther too? Because maybe God can use your story to help encourage other women too, to let other women know that, that, that they're not alone. There's people that love them and want to walk through this with them. Because, man, we need to speak truth to people on this topic. We also desperately need to be known as a church that's not just against this thing, but has a deep compassion and mercy and love for people who've walked through this. Because real love has truth and justice, but is also saturated in mercy. Church, before I close, I just want to say this. We're going to get to faith part in the end. That's really quick. Um, it, it feels like as, as people in our culture now that we have to be experts on every topic. Do you feel the pressure of that? Because of the 24-hour news cycle, because of social media, because of the internet, like we all have to be experts on every single topic that's out there. And especially as a pastor, I feel the weight of that. I just have to have all the answers all the time for every topic and know all the nuance and know all the details and know all the arguments and know all the conspiracies and know all the controversies. And I just can't know all those things. So can I just say this? I am not an expert on this topic. I know what the Bible says, but when it comes to all the nuance and all the controversies, I'm not an expert on this topic. That's why I said go to people like Esther that can point you to different ministries in our city and a pregnancy care center and other places that are experts, that people who do know what they're doing, who have walked through this. So we want to partner with those people and, and we want to partner with experts on this so that we do this thing well. We're not just trying to find our way through the darkness. Does that make sense? But, but, Here's what I do now. We're to love our neighbor as ourself. Because, can I just be honest? I don't know if we should be protesting outside of an abortion clinic. Some of you are like, absolutely we should. And some of you are like, no, Jesus would never do that. I, I don't think that we should be sitting outside of an abortion clinic with a sign yelling, murderer. But, I, I, can I, just be, I, I can't... I don't know that I can picture Jesus outside of an abortion clinic with a sign, but maybe. I, I don't know. I'm not an expert on this. I, I, I don't know, but here's what I do know. This is what I know. There are people in this room and people in our families and people in our friend groups and people at our workplaces and people in our neighborhoods that need to hear truth on this topic and that need to be shown compassion and mercy and love if they have been through this or thinking about walking through this there are people that need you to love your neighbor as yourself because one relationship at a time one person at a time one story at a time church we can make a difference I don't know all of the details about everything out there but this I know and hey, listen, maybe God is calling some of you to much bigger things than that. Maybe, maybe this topic is something that God's put a conviction on your heart, and this is, man, you need to chase, and God wants bigger things for you and bigger ministries and, and bigger things, and praise God for that. Man, praise God for that. But I promise you, those bigger things should never come at the cost of this, loving your neighbor as yourself.
If you're out there doing bigger things, but you're ignoring your friend who's walked through this, or your family member, or someone inside your church, then we've lost our way. We've lost our way. It's not one or the other. But this I know we can do. Because do you, do you know what the last part of biblical love was, according to Micah, what is good? To walk humbly before your God. To submit your ways to God's ways, to have faith in who he says he is and who he is in his ways. And the truth is, the world already does, but even more so will hate us for our biblical stance on this. They'll say we hate women. They'll say we don't care about their health. They'll say we're trying to tell them what, we, what they should do with their bodies because we want to control them. And none of those things are true. But it's on those days when, when you don't feel like being hated. On those days when you, you want people to know that you are a loving person. But to our culture and their twisted way of love, they're saying that you're not a loving person. You just want, you just want, you don't want to be hated and you want to be, people to think you're loved. It's on those days that we're going to have to hold on to our faith. To hold on to God, to hold on to his promises, to hold on to his truth, to hold on to who he says we are in him. Because the fight for truth is not always easy. And showing mercy to those who may not deserve it is not always simple. But we have faith in God. Faith that what he says is good and right is good and right. So church, love with truth and with justice. Love with kindness and mercy and love with humility and faith. And even on the most difficult topics, we can shine the light of Jesus Christ into a dark world. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us. God, God help us to live for your glory. So many things in this life, God wants to pull us away and distract us and lie to us and convince us we're something other than who we are in you. So God, we pray that you would draw us into your glory, into your presence, into who you are, that we'd know you more and more so that we might stand firm. That we might know what's true. That we might fight for the things that you've called us to fight for. That we might seek to do justice. Well, God, I also pray that you help us with mercy because the reality is there's a lot of people out there that don't deserve mercy. So God, I'm so thankful that you left us the example on the cross, that you went to save those who didn't deserve mercy. But God, I, th I thank you that, that deserve and mercy don't really have anything to do with each other, that you just decided I'm going to have mercy, I'm going to show grace because that's who I am. God, I just pray that you help that become who we are that our first inclination is yes to stand on truth, but immediately have mercy and compassion and grace and understanding within that truth. It's so hard, God, in a culture that just tries to divide us constantly, so God, I pray that you would help. And then as it says in your word, God, we believe, but we pray that you'd help our unbelief.
We have faith in you, but God, help us on the days when we just don't have as much faith. Remind us of who you are. Remind us of your promises. And remind us of who we are in you so that we might stand firm on the truth. God, although on this topic in particular, I feel like biblically it's clear, but in, when we get into people's lives, it is just complicated. So God, I pray that you'd help us navigate those complications with wisdom. God, you say in your word, if you ask for wisdom, that you will freely give it if we trust in you. So God, help us to trust in you and we ask for wisdom so we might fight for the things that you are calling us to fight for. We, shot, we might show mercy, Jesus, as you showed mercy so that we might have faith. God, help us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, church, I made it through the whole sermon without coughing, which is a miracle in itself because I've been coughing like crazy. The only other time I've had a terrible cough, same thing happened. I didn't cough once while I was preaching. And I walked off the stage and started coughing like crazy. So um, I'm leaving right now because I don't want to cough on anybody. So I just want to say there's going to be people over there that can pray with you. I think Brandon's about to lead us through communion. Um, I'm sorry to miss that with you all today with the family, but just know that I love you and I'm constantly praying for you.